0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. So with the Dobbs decision, historic, there's been a... proliferation. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is not Brent Leatherwood, but a very special guest that I am so excited about, Dana McCain. Hi, Dana. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Lindsay.
0: Well, I wish I was in person with you because you were so delightful. have been such a blessing to the ERLC, to Southern Baptist, to so many. So I cannot wait to pick your brain here in just a minute. But first, why don't you tell our listeners, like our loyal listeners, Lori Bova, some of our staff, Rachel Wiles, Julie Masson, just want to give them a shout out. (laughs) They know who you are, but other listeners, why don't you give them just a little taste of who you are?
1: Sure. So um, I am a born and bred Alabama native, have lived here most all of my life, Um, went to Auburn University, and I'm a writer for Alabama Media Group, which is a media conglomerate in Alabama that has three of our sort of flagship print newspapers in the state, the Huntsville Times, the Birmingham News, the Mobile Press Register, and then our digital platform, al.com, that sort of hosts content from all of those print publications as well. And so I write a weekly column um, dealing with the intersections between public policy and politics and faith and culture. So some weeks, topically, that looks like something that is purely about a piece of legislation, either at the state or federal level and what i think i would want legislators or leaders to do there sometimes it's about a more faith centric topic where i'm able to speak you know really clearly about my own biblical worldview and christian way of approaching things and other times it's it's sort of one of those intersection topics where there is a good biblical application to whatever public policy question we're looking at or whatever political moment we're facing. So it's um it's fascinating. It's always, you know, in, in the times in which we live, people have a lot of strong opinions about all of these things. So you know, it's a it's kind of work where you have to have a, a soft heart, but really thick hide. And um, fortunately, the Lord is showing me a little more every day how to do that. And I'm sure I fail plenty, but I think I'm growing in it as well. And and it's an honor. It's, it's never boring. That's for sure.
0: Well, I, I have to be sure to tell listeners that if they do not follow you on the social medias, <laughs> on Twitter, especially <laughs> that they need to, because you are a— Beautiful and wise writer, and I always love to read what you write. It builds me up in my faith and in my thinking about matters of the public square and public policy, which are often, even though I work for the ERLC, kind of like Chinese to me, so to speak. So your writing is so helpful. I'm very thankful well, for it. You're
1: kind. And, and you know, the bonus of following me on Twitter is beyond all of those very important topics, you also get a peppering of angsty Auburn sports takes um, because <laughs> I, I do a lot of that on Twitter as well. And there's so much to be angsty about right now. I don't know if you've watched the Auburn-Penn State game, but whoo rough waters. <laughs> I, I didn't,
0: but I'm a Gator fan. I went to University of Florida. So mm-hmm. I am joining in on the angsty camp. In fact, I don't follow them quite as closely because yeah. it's just a little too stressful. <laughs> I, like, I like being winning, <laughs> a winning team.
1: It's taken years off my life. Auburn football yes. has shaved a, a good six or eight years off of my total life expectancy. That's the price I, I, I pay. <laughs> I understand. And this weekend
0: we'll be shaving years off the life of some of our coworkers, specifically Brent and Jason, because the Vols and the Gators play. And the Vols oh, also wow. have not
1: been uh, oh, been performing yeah. too well. That's no pleasure cruise either. No. <laughs> it is no pleasure cruise.
0: <laughs> Dana, you mentioned the work that you do and your writing and how you write on faith and public policy. So how did you develop a passion for this convergence? And also, how can Southern Baptists develop a better understanding of how our faith and public policy intersect?
1: Sure. Well, for many years, I wrote as a freelancer almost exclusively in the areas of Christian parenting and marriage. I saw an opportunity there to bring a biblical perspective to so many ways that. We can influence and encourage the culture by, you know, applying godly wisdom to the way we nurture our families. And that was a wonderful outlet for me. But then about six or seven years ago, I began to pick up on and become really aware of what I thought of as a a pretty dramatic shift in the way that believers were reacting to issues of public policy and politics and sort of the tone and the way that we were engaging with the issues of the day. And I felt like there were some things that were potentially getting lost in that noise that should not be lost, things that should be said, that perhaps were not being said frequently and clearly enough. And I wanted, or really just felt the Lord prompting me to begin to speak into that. And I will be completely transparent and tell you that it filled me with a lot of fear. Because if you write an article about, you know, how to, um, you know, train your children to pray, you don't get hate mail. But if you write an article or a column, you know, urging people to walk away from, you know, some sort of tribal political mindset that may be becoming an an idol and not really focused on the kingdom and glorifying the Lord, the mail is very different. And, And so I knew that I would be exposing myself to criticism and blowback that that I was not previously exposed to. And that has truly been a part of the story. But even in that, the Lord has been faithful to um, provide people around me who have encouraged me and affirmed me and have given me you know, what I needed to hear, to endure, even in some of that unpleasantness and know that. Even if people don't understand outside the body of Christ and sometimes even inside the body of Christ, that the truth is still worth telling. And um, we tell it with love and we trust the Lord to do something with it. With regard to how Southern Baptists can think about these issues and engage them well, I think one of the themes that that surfaces for me over and over is that the key to staying in the right lane as we participate in the public square and let me just pause right there and say our participation in the public square is absolutely essential if we are silent or on the sidelines it creates a vacuum that secularism will fill and other people will fill that with other truths i put them in air quotes because we know they're not really the truth other other worldviews and ways of thinking those will fill that vacuum so we have to remain engaged but I think one of the things we must do to do this well is to constantly check in with ourselves and honestly assess whether our loves and our motivations are rightly ordered. And what I mean by that is if we are you know, keeping the kingdom of God and eternal things primary at all times, that will keep us out of the weeds many times of engaging with haste or engaging um, in ways that are not loving. Because if we get out there and we are engaging with ideas or engaging them in a way that distracts from our ultimate mission of helping people to know God and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're we're losing the long game in service to the short game. So I think we've got to really keep that hierarchy of importance in the forefront of our minds. What is the long game? The long game is drawing people to the cross. And um, we want to reflect constantly the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So um, if we engage with that in the forefront of our minds, I think it will enable us to engage well and properly.
0: That is a good encouragement because, like you mentioned, with short game and the long game, I think it's so easy to get consumed by the short game because we get consumed by places like Twitter and Facebook and, and less consumed by time in the Word and time in prayer and time in the spiritual disciplines that will equip us to bring that long game to bear on the short game.
1: That's right. And I think right now, one of the messaging tools that people on all sides of, of the political field use is, is fear. They leverage fear and a sense of emergency about all things all the time. If we lose this race and this district, it is the end of the world. Therefore, anything we must say or do to ensure victory here is okay because the stakes are that high. We're constantly raising the stakes about every facet of the game everywhere on the political board, and I think that is really out of line with a faith-filled acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God, where absolutely we must be faithful. We must continue to tell the truth and do the right thing and engage in the right ways. But our engagement should never be, you know, a red emergency run on adrenaline and fear. It should be a reflection of our trust in the sovereign God that we serve.
0: That's right. Because yeah, the thing that that we should most fear, condemnation and judgment and separation from the Lord because of our sins, has been taken care of. That's the scariest thing that could ever happen, but we lose sight of that. I lose sight of that. Dana, you mentioned your uh, the hate mail that you get, which I can only imagine— But I have a question about your Twitter header, the picture it says on Twitter. It says, you look like a smart and successful woman. Congratulations. Is that what it says? (laughs) What's the story behind that?
1: It does. So um, one of the other um, interesting and cringy parts of being a very online sort of media personality is you get a lot of creepy DMs and um there was an onslaught of creepy dms in in one particular season and that was one of them from this um strange guy And I, i'm not sure exactly what his end game was but that was the way he started That's out. Amazing. and i thought i'm going to take this affirmation and and make it <laughs> and make it my my header and and just you know juice it for what it's worth uh, smart and successful i'll take it buddy <laughs> <laughs> exactly,
0: and just uh, relish in uh, the encouragement in the midst of all the other males. That's right, I always get a chuckle getting. when
1: I open it up and see that. I'm like, who even was that guy? <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, that is so funny. I love it. <laughs> Well, one of the areas that you write so eloquently about is uh, the area that has to do with pro-life issues. So with the Dobbs decision, historic, there's been a proliferation of misinformation, misunderstanding, and as you mentioned, an undercurrent of fear from some, from many. And some of this has revolved around the discussion uh, about the criminalization of women who seek abortions. So what is the case against this? And why has this been the traditional pro-life stance and the position of the SBC?
1: Yeah, well, I think you're you're right that this whole discussion has been made more difficult by a lot of the misinformation that is being pumped out there. And some of that, sadly, isn't intentional to, again, create that fear that the pro-abortion lobby hopes will motivate people to go to the polls and sort of move the the political and policy needle back in their direction. And so that is unfortunate. But as it revolves around the question of the criminalization of women, there was a time in my life where I probably would have viewed this analysis in a very flat, impersonal philosophical way and thought, yeah, just just the the ethical math X plus Y equals Z. And yeah convict them. And then God, in His wisdom, allowed me to have some experiences that shaped my perspective and sort of disabused me of that simplistic view of it. And the main thing that He used was several years working in a Christian crisis pregnancy center um, where I was sitting across from women daily who were struggling with crisis pregnancies and trying to figure out what to do. And I realized through those many, many conversations over years that um, so many of the women who are struggling with an unexpected pregnancy are not the only decision maker in the room. Around every abortion, there are several players. The first is the doctor. And that is a person that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt has all the agency in the world. The benefit of all the information in the world. They know exactly what they are doing, and they are there 100% of their own volition. You've got the woman. You many times have scared and or angry parents if the pregnant mother is a younger person. You've often got a partner. Sometimes you have a pimp or a sex trafficker who has a vested interest in getting that woman unentangled from this pregnancy and back out on the streets doing what he needs of her. Many times you have an abusive boyfriend or partner who does not want the responsibility of a mouth to feed and a child to raise. A lot of times I would see um, women who did not have the benefit of parents in their lives at all, but maybe lived with a grandparent on a very limited, below the poverty line income. And and maybe that grandparent was saying, you're not bringing a baby in this house. You're not bringing a baby in this house, period. You're going and you're ending this pregnancy. And so all of those scenarios that I would see over and over and over again, and and the realization that that I had that so many women who are in this demographic that even consider abortion do live below the poverty line, And with poverty comes a lack of power in many cases. The math was so much more complicated all of a sudden. And what true justice was, was so much more complicated. And so I I think the approach that we have had in pro-life advocacy for decades now of prosecuting doctors whom we know beyond a shadow of a doubt you know, have a choice and have all the information and are under zero duress in every abortion. That is a justice-seeking pathway. When we get into the business of prosecuting women, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for American jurisprudence to make sense of the kind of pressure and the kind of duress that may or may not be coming from all of these other players who are playing very active and very Real roles in that decision. Um, The burden of proof, you know, to convict a third party like that outside the woman or or the doctor is extraordinarily high. And, you know, most local district attorneys just shake their heads and roll their eyes when I have this discussion with them. They're like, Dana, that's not going to happen. We're We're never going to bring charges against a boyfriend, even if we know he's a bad person and that he pushed her and he demanded it. Like we can't prove it. like where where's our chain of evidence It's that's almost impossible. And so I think biblical justice, and there's a book that's coming out soon by a, a great thinker in this area named Matt Martins that I cannot wait to get my hands on, where he really takes a deep dive into, what justice looks like in accordance with Scripture. But to my way of thinking, and what the Lord is continuing to show me is that I would much rather let some women who did have agency and who made a wrong choice walk free rather than prosecute a woman who was under extraordinary duress, who didn't even want the abortion, but she is the one that the law will catch in its net. She is the one who will lack the resources for an adequate legal defense to demonstrate the duress that she was under. I don't want to, in our pursuit of justice, unintentionally create new and worrisome types of injustice. I think there are better ways. And so that's why I have been very resistant to you know, statutes that would call for the criminalization of women. I think it it gets us into an area of uncertainty that will most certainly lead to prosecutions that I don't think will be pleasing to the Lord. Well, I appreciate your candor in
0: sharing that and just how the Lord has given you a heart change and a change of mind. Because I do believe in In this discussion, you know, at the SBC, there's the discussion between the abolitionists and those who are incremental in their thinking, and which would be our position at the ERLC. Of course, both agreeing that we want to see abortion done away with, babies' lives saved, mothers cared for. There are good faith actors who are reasoning through this. How do we deal with moral responsibility and justice. And I think it's important to remember, as you have so thoughtfully shared, that justice is going to look imperfect in this world that we live in right now. And it's going to be hard to dole that out in a right way that's pleasing to the Lord. So I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate that letting us know about that book. I do see Matt Martins on Twitter and his conversations there, but that sounds like it would be so helpful.
1: He always really impresses me and helps me to, you know, push some of these complex questions through a truly biblical grid for sorting them, because the answers are not easy. I I do not want to ever talk down to those who um, would advocate for criminalization, because I think their hearts are in the right place. I think their desire to protect the unborn is right, and it's God-honoring I just think there's a better way, and so I, I think continuing to have this conversation is important, and pausing before we would pass statutes in pro-life states that might have unintended consequences that that none of us would want is is the right thing to do.
0: Well, and that's the key, being able to continue to have conversations with one another and not vilify one another. As we're having these these conversations that need to be had and as we desire to protect babies and to care for vulnerable mothers sure so you've you mentioned this earlier about well, your writing and the political climate that we live in and how it's filled with contention and hate, and you see that in your inbox, I'm sure, on a daily basis, yes. So we, in a sense, we need to take a look uh, in the mirror. How are we as Christians contributing to this climate? And how can we do better and use our influence to truly be salt and light in the public square?
1: I think this is so much harder for us than it was for our grandparents' generation. You know, I, I described for my young adult children the other day this scenario. I said, We got up in the mornings in the 1970s, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and we had breakfast, and my dad went to work, and my brothers and I went to school, and we had seen or heard no media content most of the time. The television might be on in the house, but it was like the local morning news show. It was on so we could catch the weather and know whether we needed to wear a jacket or take an umbrella. And then we would do our whole lives, have our whole day, again, with zero media content or influence. We would come home and have dinner, and Walter Cronkite would explain the news to us for 30 minutes. He had 30 minutes to get the essential facts of the day in, and then the television went to hee-haw, and we were done with that. <laughs> <I can't laughs> and so them. comparing that controlled amount of information and limited amount of information. If you only have 30 minutes or an hour to disseminate the news to Americans, you are forced to kind of stick to the facts. Now, yeah, there's bias in which facts you put forth and and which facts you hold back on. But for the most part, it's facts. But when you go to a 24-hour cable news cycle and 24 hours of social media platforms pumping out content, and being rewarded for clicks, and views, and viewers, all of a sudden, the whole news industry, and I put news in air quotes, is really an entertainment industry. And they are incentivized to keep you in front of that content by whatever means they need to use. And what they have learned through testing and ratings reviews is that controversy keeps you there. That, you know, elevating. Division keeps you there. And so that is the name of the game for purveyors of a lot of media. So I think Christians, first of all, need to back away from drinking from the fire hose of information and commentary so many hours per day. And I say that as someone who makes her living writing commentary. Don't read me every week, you will survive, it will be fine. You know, ask the Lord to show you maybe which news sources are most beneficial to you and that you should use your time to engage with. But this business of being tethered to media all day long and keeping it on in the background of our homes with cable news, you know, just panel after panel after panel of argumentative commentators and and name calling, that does something to us. It changes us, you know, scripture tells us over and over to be careful what we expose ourselves to, to be careful about what we think about. And we directly defy those instructions when we let just an unfiltered avalanche of information into our homes and into our hearts and minds every day. So I would say, number one, limit the amount of intake so that you can spend more time talking to your neighbor. Instead of letting a panelist in D.C. or New York tell you what to think about your neighbor, walk across the street and take them a pie and have a conversation and make up your own mind about them. They may still be very complicated to you. You may not agree on all things, but I promise you this, you will love them more after the real-life interaction and the pie than you will from just listening to the analysis of the commentator in a studio somewhere. So cut down the content and then be prayerful and discerning about which media sources you do take in. Some are more credible than others. I think it's really difficult to find media outlets that are completely untainted by the economics of media these days, but some are really trying to be fair journalism present facts in a balanced way and to provide commentary that is more helpful than divisive. So, but it takes discipline. You know, that's it's so easy and I do it too. You know, I'm I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else. There are a lot of mornings that my alarm goes off and I roll over in the bed and I immediately pick that phone up and my thumb without even thinking opens Twitter. It opens Twitter before I've even opened the Word of God. And so it takes discipline to say, no, Dana, we're not going to go there before we've gone to truth. We've got we've to gird our hearts and our minds with the truth before we even engage with this, or we won't have the discernment to know what we're looking at otherwise. So um, that would be my, my charge to my fellow believers. It's hard, but we can do it. I'm so glad that you mentioned the word
0: discipline, because that is what was going on on in my mind as you were talking about this because I've I've tried and failed a million times to do this too just especially with with smartphones it it, it requires discipline and a, a work of the spirit to be able to do that and it, it requires falling down and getting up a million times but I think that is all such good and helpful counsel if you could So, you just had that chat with us as believers. But if you could bring all of your SBC brothers and sisters together and have a family chat, what else would you say? What other encouragement would you offer? And what constructive counsel would you give?
1: Well, I would say that these are difficult times in which we live. You know, some of the things that we are facing in cultural debate, where, you know, even fundamental observable facts like what makes a person a man or a woman is suddenly up for debate and it's it's upsetting but we serve a risen savior who has defeated sin and death and none of these things even are a surprise to the god we serve so i would just encourage us all to continue to be faithful daily faithful in the word and reflecting the truth of the word to our neighbors, to our children, to our friends, to the people in our spheres of influence, but to also be reflecting the joy of the Lord while we do that. To not be characterized by fear of sins that our Savior has already defeated. To tell the truth and to trust the Lord in His sovereignty— to complete the good work that He has started in our lives and in the lives of our families and in the body of Christ, and to just reflect the joy and the love um, and the grace and mercy that we've been the recipients of to the people who are around us, and, and let the Holy Spirit fill in the gaps. Sometimes it will look messy, and sometimes it may even look like momentary defeat. But again, it's the difference in having an eternal perspective and a completely short game perspective. We know how this story ends, and we know um, that the victory is won. And so we can rest in that, and we can we can engage with joy. And so that's what I would hope that I can continue to do. Uh, some days it's harder than others, but that's what I hope for all of us. Amen. And I forgot to ask, what kind of pie would you be bringing along to this chat? Ooh, well, it depends on the time of the year. If it's in the summer, I'm going to do something that's, you know, like refrigerated and cool, like a key mm-hmm. lime. Mm-hmm. But in the winter, I make a really good chocolate pecan pie.
0: Oh, that, yum.
1: Um, it's worth calories, I would say. Yeah.
0: Well, it's yeah. kind of like Derby pie. I used to live in Louisville for a little bit. Yes. Similar. So, yes,
1: very, oh, very, yum. very similar.
0: Yum. Well, I wish I had some on hand because you're making me want some of
1: that now. (laughs) Next
0: time I come to Nashville, I'll bring one. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, Dana, thank you so much for joining us and just encouraging us and giving us things to think about and speaking wisely to us. And again, listeners, I would encourage you to go follow Dana on Twitter and send her some encouraging messages in her DMs that she can make as
1: the... (laughs) header of her Twitter. (laughs) I love them. You may be the next star of my header. (laughs) I cannot wait.
0: (laughs) Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It is edited and mixed by Mark Owens. In addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is a leading voice on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy issues that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week with more content.